0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. I am so thankful for all those volunteers that are helping to come alongside parents in the discipleship of our kiddos. They are a blessing. I know all of us are feeling the weight of the lost hour of sleep, and maybe if you're like me, more so the sun yesterday and the not-so-sunny morning this morning. However, we are blessed this morning to have the opportunity to gather, to sit under the read word and the prayed word and the sung word and now the preached word. So if you have your Bible and you'd like to read along with me, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. If you do not have a Bible... Uh, There's a Bible somewhere around you under a seat. That'll be on page 1004. If you do not own a Bible, we want to encourage you to pick one of those up in the lobby and please take it with you. We are serious about God's Word, or we want to be serious about God's Word, and we can't do that if we're not able to open it and read it together and work through it. So I still hear a few pages turning there. I'm thinking those of you with apps have got to Romans 9, 6 through 13. Let's read God's Word together. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For through her, excuse me, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to this word from you, as we seek to understand and be transformed by it, it's my request, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear and that you would open our eyes to see. Holy Spirit, illuminate what it is that we would need to make clear sense of this text And Lord, then apply it in ways that would transform us and conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, help me to preach this correctly and well, with clarity. And Lord, let it be concise. And Lord, help us to hear from you. And God, I pray that you would transform us in this. And Lord, I pray you would give us humility in this very difficult text, that we'd have humility in our own understanding and humility with our brothers and sisters, and grace and patience for those who are working through it together. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've said it week in and week out as we've got through chapter 8. Paul has laid out a presentation of the gospel from Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8. And that presentation was clear, and it was concise, and it was convincing, and it was compelling. But now we have to ask ourselves, if it's true, how can it be possible that those who are entrusted to represent God to the world, the Israelites, could so easily reject Jesus? If this argument is so fantastic and so good, if it's it's so clear and so concise and so wonderful and it's all about salvation, how in the world could people just so so simply just brush it off? That is the question. And we need to remember that for Paul's original readers, the Jews and the Gentiles in this first century church, they were really close to this situation, right? They knew Israelites who had rejected Jesus, whether it was friends and family members, if it was co-workers, they were going about their daily business alongside of those who did not see and could not see this clear, concise argument of the gospel. So for them, it was personal, and it was very real. So the question is the right question. Did God's word fail? Did God fail to keep his word because these people, who were supposed to be his people and he was going to be their God, would just brush God aside? I mean, some of the people may have had doubts. I know I've certainly had doubt creep in sometimes. Is God really going to come through? Am I really going to stand before the Lord and and be saved? Can I trust what God says, knowing his decisions are right, foregoing the things of this world that look so pleasurable and trusting his things? Can Can I really know he keeps his promises? Can we really trust God? If you're having doubt this morning, please rest assured God's Word does not fail. Please know that God keeps His promises, and His Word proves that to us. So Paul's point in the section of Scripture we just read is to answer that question. It's the question. Is the Israelites' rejection of Jesus, the Messiah, proof that God failed? Or is it proof that we can't really trust God? That's a profound question. It's a big question. Some that we still wrestle with today, certainly they were wrestling with it then, which is why Paul is working through it in his letter after he just came through with all this agony and, and all this situation. You say, what what do we do here? Right? That's what Paul wants to show us. But as helpful as Paul's, Text here is as, as helpful as this answer is to us, as much as we need it when we doubt, as much as we need to trust that God keeps his word, sometimes we get a little bit distracted by the two points that he uses to prove his argument. He uses two examples, and then that causes us to say, wait, 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 wait a minute. What's what's this thing? Israel uh, might not be Israel? All those who are part of Israel are not Israel. And what's up with Israel? Or what's this stuff down here at the bottom part of this? He chooses who he saves, and we get really distracted here, don't we? So this morning, I really want to encourage us from God's word that God keeps his promises, but I know that if I don't deal with those two things on the front end, those things that can become challenging in the church and divisive even in the church, the things that can be sometimes very distracting, sometimes very helpful, if I don't deal with these things first, I know you won't hear the encouraging part. So my intention this morning is to first deal with this situation with Israel. Some of Israel is not Israel. And then I want to deal with this issue of God's sovereignty and who he chooses. So then I can come back around and say, okay, now let's take a look at the encouraging part from the, the, the point Paul is really pressing. God keeps his promises. So let's start with these two other things first. Not that they're not important but I know they're probably more pressing on most of our minds, even though we should be focused on the point Paul is making. So let's start with Romans uh, 9, 6. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's how he starts. Okay, how so? How would the word of God fail? What's he talking about? He goes on. Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Okay, to say the last part in another way, Not every physical Israelite descendant is a child of the promise. Or to say it still in another way, the children of the flesh are not children of God. Now today we might say, well, of course. Like, that's not that complicated, right? But that was not the typical thinking in Jesus' day. To to show you, in John 8, Jesus is having an argument with the Israelite Pharisees. And he says, hey, we're all slaves to sin. All of us are sinners. But he says those who trust him, Jesus, those who trust Jesus can be set free from that slavery. And here's their rebuttal. They 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 say no 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 that's not that's not true Jesus. You know why? There's their answer in John 8:39. Our father is Abraham. We're good. We have father Abraham, so that's not us. They're saying we have a physical lineage. We are a certain people group. And that's what saves us from sin. That's their argument. Now, Jesus responds to that. And it's not pretty. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. And then he goes on to say that Abraham trusted the word of God, having faith in God. And then in verse forty forty four, he says you are of your father the devil we're abraham's children no you're the devil's child holy smokes now obviously they're not the physical lineage of the devil but here's the kicker even if they were it wouldn't matter you know why paul or excuse me jesus just said the physical lineage does not matter whether it's of abraham or the devil faith matters So to support the claim that Paul was making that not all of Israel is true Israel, or not all physical Israel is true Israel, Paul gives us two examples. The first example he gives us is Isaac. So let's go ahead and take a look at verses 7 through 9. Here's his first support for his argument. Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are considered to be the offspring. For this, statement, for this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. So Paul ties Abraham's children, that term, that statement, to true Israel when he said it's not the children by physical descent, so not the ones who've come through that physical lineage with a shared DNA. Those ones are not the children of the promise or God's children, he says. But the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. And the promise, he says, can be seen or or traced through or shown through Isaac. Okay, but it's not that those who are the physical descendants of Isaac are the ones who are good. It's not like, oh, well, Abraham had some other kids, and those kids aren't good, but the physical descendants of Isaac are good because he just said it's not the physical line. It's something else. It's something that has to do with this promise. So then what is a child of promise? What in the world, Paul, are you talking about here? Well, if we go back from this point and we look, God made a bunch of promises, a lot of promises to his people. He made promises to Abraham. Okay, and some of those promises were were great blessings, things like land and things like being able to have children. And the most significant of God's promises is the one he continually repeated throughout generation to generation, even all the way to us. They, his people, would be his people, and he would be their God. And he kept reaffirming that particular promise. But when it comes to Isaac specifically... There's a sense of some special trust, isn't there? God comes to Abraham and Sarah. He says, you're going to have a child. And they laugh because they were pretty gray-haired by that time. They were getting pretty old. Let's turn to Genesis 17. If you go there with me, Genesis 17, 15 through 19. Let's take a look at how this plays out. This necessary special trust of a promise. It's all the way back on page 12 if you're using that. Pew Bible, that should give you some perspective on where we're at in the story. Genesis 17, verses 15 through 19. Let's pick the story up. God said to Abraham, As for your wife, Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. Now, he had to clarify that because Abraham already has a physical son through a concubine. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell down on his face, then laughed, which I would not recommend that's your response to God. And he said to himself, can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? That is a pretty reasonable question, is it not? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? That's his thinking right now. This looks impossible. Will I really trust God? Can God really keep his promises? Can he really do what he says he can do, even with super old people having babies? So Abraham said to God, this is verse 18. Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. Ishmael was his other son. Ishmael was his firstborn son, even though it was born, Ishmael was born to a concubine. But God said, no, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. Interesting, interesting situation there. It would seem that God's children are those who trust God's promises And this one seemed like a biggie, didn't it? This one seemed like an impossibility. And God was saying, Abraham, will you trust? Sarah, will you trust? Incidentally, Sarah also laughs. This must have been a really funny scenario that really old people would have kids. But I think we'd see the same thing today, wouldn't we? It seems laughable. It seems impossible. And God's saying, will you trust this promise? Will you trust? It's not just that you were the children in the physical lineage, it's that you will trust. Now, some of those individuals were enjoying the blessings of being in that lineage. There were blessings that came. But even while they were enjoying the blessings, if they didn't trust God, they still remained as children of the flesh. Romans 4:13 says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but listen to this, but through the righteousness of that comes by faith. We'll even see in Romans 11, as we keep going, that that by faith, those who are not physically born in the lineage of Isaac can be grafted in and be considered one of God's children. And they become the recipients of this promise. And they enjoy the blessings of this promise, that they will be God's people and he will be their God. We even see this in John chapter 1, in the opening, verses 11 through 13, says, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent. Do you hear that? They were born not of physical lineage or of the will of the flesh, Or of the will of man. Nothing of the will of our our desires, our nature, causes us to be children of God. Nothing of our will, of our mind, can cause us to be children of God. It says, but of God. Only those who are born of God are given the right to become children of God. Those are God's children, according to these verses. And What we just read says, you can be one of God's children. If you believe, if you believe who he is, who he says he is, if you trust him, if you put your hope in him that he's the one that saves, if you receive him by this belief, if you trust him, it says you can become a child of God. The point is that God keeps his promises to his children. He keeps his promises. He doesn't fail. But his children are those who hear and trust The word of God not all people of the nation of Israel are truly children of God but some are we see as the story goes where do you think the early church came from all those disciples were Israelites the 12 oh but what about Judas yeah he was an Israelite people 120 in the room The people that Paul was writing to at this point, Jews and Israelites, Gentiles as well. Those who have faith are given the right to become children of God. And if you're in here and you say, look, I I don't know Jesus. Come talk with us. We will talk with you about this. You have the ability, God's word said, whoever comes, if God is drawing you to come, he'll accept you. You can be his child regardless of your physical lineage. Regardless of where you've come from, you can be his child. We'd love to chat with you more about that. Please come chat with me right after the service. Send me an email. Reach out to us. Talk to the person you're here with. You can become a child of God. If you don't know him, I'm challenging you. Get to know Jesus and ask yourself, do I believe he is who he says he is? Do I believe and hope that he will save me? And God's word says, if you do, he will save you because he keeps his promises. That's the first example that Paul uses. Paul, Paul goes to another example. So he's got these two. The second example that he uses to support his claim is Jacob. Okay, And again, he's making the same case that not all of Israel is Israel. That's the, that's the thesis of what he's saying here. And then it's in this section we also see something very significant about the doctrine of God's sovereignty and who he elects, who are his children, and what he does. Now, before I go here, I have to acknowledge that not all Christians look at this text and readily embrace what I'm going to share. Some of us in this room might struggle with this. I've struggled with this. What we have in front of us is a difficult and challenging section of Scripture. And here's where the struggles usually come. Here's what we do in the struggles, and I think I've done almost all of these, if not all of them, at some point in my own journey, so if this is you, that's fine. I just want to encourage that we embrace and acknowledge the struggle as we look at God's Word. The first thing we do when we struggle is that, with this is we just avoid the entire chapter. Like, man, I'm not going there. It's like when people ask me to preach on when Samuel was raised from the dead, and there's this thing, and I'm like, what the... Kinda of don't want to go there, right? But it's God's word, right? We don't want to miss the entire counsel of God by avoiding chapter nine in the book of Romans. God has it here for a reason. We don't want to be like Thomas Jefferson. I'm sure most of you know about the Jefferson Bible. He took out a blade and he cut out all the little parts of the Bible he didn't like. Oh my goodness, really? You get this like Bible that you can blow wind through because you've cut out everything that you find, you know, not to your own liking. My goodness, we don't want to be like Thomas Jefferson in that way by any means. Let's be open to the whole counsel of God. Let's not avoid God's word. The second thing we'll do if we don't like it is we'll do these (laughs) exegetical gymnastics to try to make this say something else, like that this is actually about entire people groups. He's talking about entire people groups. That's usually the way we try to get out from underneath this text. It's not about individuals, it's about people groups. And Paul is not talking about individuals, they'll say, and I've said. But here's the reality, Paul is talking about individuals. He's talking about individual Israelites who break his heart. You look back in 9, 1 through 3, that's what started this whole thing. In 9, 1 through 3, his heart is broken for Israelites he knows, that he's lived with. And he's saying, I would give myself up, to be judged by God and go to hell for their sake. He's talking about individual Israelites. He's not talking about entire people groups. And even here, his examples that he gives are individual Israelites. They have names, Isaac and Jacob and Abraham. These are individual people. And by the way, Jesus personally saves individuals, not people groups. He saves individuals. And what about the whosoever's like in John 3:16? Whosoever shall come he will save. He will not turn away anybody who comes to him. That's a promise. This isn't about whole people groups. This is about individuals. The third thing we might be tempted to do through some exegetical contortion is to make this text only about the temporal or only about the earthly things. It's only about earthly blessings and it has nothing to do with salvation. When he's talking about God's children, children of the promise, he's only talking about the land and a physical earthly kingdom and he's not talking about salvation and eternity with God. I think that's complete and utter nonsense and here's why. Go back up to Romans 9, 1 through 3. Would Paul be okay to give up his eternal salvation To give up Christ, to be anathema, to be cursed for people to enjoy the physical blessing in this lifetime? I don't think so. This is about big picture, forever, eternal stuff. It's not about only temporal. Now the temporal blessings very well could be included in here. But that's not where it stops. So we don't want to be tempted to think that's what he's talking about. And finally there's this one. This is probably the hardest, and I love you guys, and if this hits close to home, just know this was a hand grenade in my own life for a few years. We might be tempted to think when we read this that God looks down the halls of time, and he looks down there, and he says, okay, I see that person would choose me, and that person would be a godly person, and that person, so I'm going to choose them now before I create the world, and then based on that, because I chose them, they'll choose me. Or, to say it another way, in the inverse. People will think, God looked down the halls of time. He saw who would reject him. So he said, before they reject me, I reject them. Neither of these two things are true. Neither can be true. Because that line of thinking requires a condition. And that condition would then be the influencing factor that would force God's decision. If they choose me, then I choose them. It makes it conditional. And if you think this, and I've thought this in my life, if you think this, I want you to pay very, very close attention to verse 11 when we read it again. Because I want you to notice that Paul says, her sons had not yet been born or done anything good or bad. He's making the point that there was no condition carried out on the part of the sons, no works, no factors, no anything that could be pointed back to to explain God's choosing of his people. There's nothing they would have done. Paul doesn't mention this looking down the corridors of time here. He does. The point Paul is making is outside of anything. Of these two sons, none of that could have influenced God. Now, I want to encourage you that we let the word of God pierce our souls here, because I know this is hard stuff. And there's things in here that should make us angry, and that obviously Paul knows the response is that we want to weep. Okay, when we read this, we have a choice do I reject and cut it out like Thomas Jefferson? Or do I embrace what's here? Do I seek the Lord to help me understand it even if I don't like it? But I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. What? I don't like that. That sounds terrible. That's, I don't like it at all. You want to say, that's so unfair, God, and you want to shake your fist at God, but I want you to pay close attention. The very next thing Paul deals with Is that question, what should we say? Is there injustice? Is God unfair? God knows that's going to be our heart and he's going to deal with those objections. And he's going to answer our questions when we struggle with this text. We're going to go there next week, God willing. In the meantime, I want to encourage if you're struggling with this, please pray and say, Lord, show me. Keep reading, don't avoid it. Keep working through it. Please, come chat with me about it. I struggled with this text for a lot of years, and it pushed me far from God for a season. I get the struggle. If you're in the struggle, we're here with you. And let's just ask the Lord to help us go through it. It's not easy stuff. This is big stuff. This is complicated stuff. This is not so simple as we want to make Christianity, is it? Christianity deals with the complexities of real life. This is put on your big boy pants stuff. Now, we're going to head into this and take a look. Let me just pray for us one more time as we do. Lord, help us to see this. Help us to understand it. Lord, we want to see your ways in this, not our ways. We want to see how your word does not fail us or fail. And that you keep your promises. So, Lord, just show us, illuminate this in the text. For those of us who are struggling through this, help us to see as you would have us to see. And Lord, please give us grace and peace towards our brothers and sisters who are also struggling. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. With all that, now you're like, oh my goodness, what's about to happen? With all of that, let's go ahead and take a look at verses 10 through 13. His second example. Okay, verse 10. And not only that, referring to his previous example, but Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet, or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. In this day and time, the greatest blessings and the greatest inheritance and all the special stuff from dad went to the oldest son, the firstborn son. That's a big deal. And everybody else got practically nothing. Right? It was a big, big deal. But to show That God chooses who He chooses, regardless of what anybody has done, regardless of conventional practices for elevating the firstborn son over any others, He said to, to Rebecca, The older will serve the younger. I've chosen something different. He's made a statement, a promise. Will they trust? Will they trust? God wants to show his sovereignty in this. Now, here's the the interesting thing. He chose Jacob, but let's remember, Esau and Jacob had the same biological father and the same biological mother. Not to be too graphic, but they were twins, and they were conceived in the same act. Uh, Both of them could call Abraham grandpa, Grandpa Abraham and Grandma Sarah. They both could claim that lineage both could claim Isaac and Rebekah as their parents. One, using earthly convention, could claim being the firstborn. But we just read that didn't matter. God said, I don't look to that. Before they were born. Before they had done anything. Before we even knew the birth order of which would be which. God said the older would serve The younger, God promises this. If you go to, well, I'll just read it for the sake of time Genesis 25, 23. That's where you find it. The older would serve the younger, and that's before they were born. God said so. God keeps his promises, even if they tried to do otherwise. Now, don't forget the context here. The context here is that that Paul is proving that God's promises have not failed. And his claim is some Israelites rejected Jesus. Some Israelites are not true Israel. Okay? The meat of his example, the, the biggest tangible pieces of his example, are found in Romans 11 and 12. The clause order here can be confusing. Because there's, I mean, Paul loves conditional and unconditional clauses with commas and run on sentences. He loves this stuff. But it could be reordered like this. And I would encourage you to just look at it and and look at the grammar of it. It could go like this. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, she was told the older will serve the younger. And then we'd ask why. So that. That's a purpose statement. Why would we do this? So that God's purpose, and there's a little clause on what God's purpose is, which is according to election and... Not because of works, but instead from the one who calls, stands. The older will serve the younger, so that God's purpose stands. What God says happens. We don't need to worry about it. If he said it, it will happen. It will come true. It does not fail. That's the point. That's what Paul's trying to get across here. Romans 8.28. Some of us have part of it memorized. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Keep reading. Who are called according to his purposes. That's the same language we're talking about. God works everything out for his purposes. That's what is good, God's purposes. So when it came to Jacob, God's word did not fail. And he called it beforehand, like calling your pool shots. This pocket, no slop here. No accidental shots. God says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So this should encourage that when it comes to true Israel, God's word doesn't and won't fail. So we can't look at physical Israel and declare that God's word failed. We must look at true Israel. And when we see that, it should be encouraging for us. If it doesn't fail there then I think we can say it won't likely fail here with us. If he's been keeping his promises all this time, moving through all this stuff, then I think it's very encouraging to think he's going to keep his promises with us. God's word won't fail. There's a lot more we could say about Israel and God's sovereignty, about his chosen people. I know this is true because there's like a thousand books written on the topic. But I want to get back to the chief purpose of what Paul opened this section with. If you want to talk with me more about Israel and more about election or more about any of other things, please, let's get coffee and let's chat. But I need these last couple of minutes to encourage us from God's word in what Paul wanted to encourage his readers in. God's word does not fail. To do this, I want to I read Isaiah fifty-five ten through 11. It'll be on the screen. I'm going to read it if you want to go there. That's fine. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says, For just as the rain and snow fall from heaven, and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout, and providing seed and so food to eat. I think we can all relate to rain and snow right now. Tulips are coming up in my yard. Just like that, the rain does something. It doesn't just evaporate back doing nothing. So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I sent it to do. God's word does what God intends his word to do. And he doesn't intend his word to fail. He intends it to do exactly what He intended it to do, and it pleases Him. So from our perspective, we might not understand exactly how God's Word is working. We might not think it's working because it's not doing what we think it should be doing. But God's Word tells us it is working. It does exactly what God intended it to do. Now here's the interesting thing. Do you know how that section of Scripture starts? I think a lot of us have the God's Word doesn't come back void, stuck in our head. Do you know how that starts? Let me read the first part of this clause. It's Isaiah 55, 8, 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And then it goes into the snow and the rain that his word doesn't fail. We lack perspective. Don't we? We fail to see how God is working sometimes because simply God's ways are so much higher than our ways. And He knows what's best, and it's working for good for those He's called. It's working for His purposes. Even if we don't get it, even if we don't see it, frankly, even if we reject it, even if we're mad, God's Word does not fail. Even if you decide that you're going to get in a fight with God, His word does not fail. He keeps His promises. This truth causes me to want God's ways in everything, it causes me to want Him in the driver's seat in everything. It causes me to say, any time God can make a choice for me, I want him to make a choice because I know my choices are terrible. And why would I trust my own choices over God's choices? Why would I want that? And if, you, if I have to choose, my goodness. God, what do you think is best in this situation, in that situation, in all of your promises? How do I hold to your ways, God, because your ways are higher than my ways? You know better than I know. And anybody who's ever had a child from little to teenager, which I've got both, recognize that sometimes humans don't always know everything. God's ways are higher than our ways. This should cause us to want to trust Him, want to follow Him, want to hear His Word and do His Word. And any time I say, I'd rather have my way over God's way, we're in sin. That's like the definition of sin. Right? No, God, I want your ways. I want to trust you. I want to see from your word and trust your word. And even if I don't understand it, I've seen over and over and over and over and over again that your purposes are good, that your ways are better. And that's how I start to grow and be sanctified. Instead of pushing away or throwing a fit or rejecting and coming back and asking for apology a million times, trying to ask forgiveness after the fact, I want to start to learn to trust before I get there. That shows that I'm trusting the Lord. That's what sanctification is. And the longer I go through this, the more it affirms in me that I can trust His Word. And His Word doesn't fail. And He has what's right for me, best in His mind, regardless of how I view it. And therefore, when we come to grips with God's Word, and we see that it doesn't fail, we learn more and more and more to trust God. Every time we see a promise kept, we have more reason to know that He trusts and keeps His promises And it just starts to make it easier and easier and easier. We become less in our desires, and he becomes more in our desires. And all the doubts and all the fears and all the worry just starts to evaporate away. So when we read these promises, we learn to trust these promises. And when we trust these promises, we learn to trust God, who makes the promises. God helps us trust Him. His Word doesn't fail. And it's my prayer for us that we can say truly, God's Word does not fail. He is trustworthy. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that through even hard examples and difficult texts and things we struggle with, you show us that we can trust you. Help us trust you. Help us when we struggle to trust you. Help us when we think we know better. Help us when we think we want to do what, be the opposite of what you want to do. Help us, Lord, to follow you. And and Lord, help us to remember constantly you know better. Your ways are higher than our ways. You are trustworthy. And God, even when we struggle, we know that you will Gently, compassionately, carefully, help your children, because you love us, because your word says you love your children. Lord, I would ask any of those who are struggling to trust you. You would help them to trust you, even if it maybe means for the very first time. You would cause hearts to soften, and that we would see people say, "Yes, I trust the Lord." for my salvation, and for my sanctification in all things. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.